I want you to imagine that for the first 30 years of your life, you couldn't read. Then fast forward 10 years and imagine finding yourself at the World Investment Forum, having been invited to facilitate 462 people, 193 countries, countless languages. And your role is to make sure that they are all heard, it's all recorded, and that an agreement is found. That's the role and the history of our next guest, Alan Parker. Alan has been a a mentor to me for over a decade now. He's the person I go to to learn my own presentation skills, sharpen my sword when it comes to negotiation skills, neuroscience, NLP. He is just a master, a pure master. Um, When we first put this podcast together, he was one of the very first people I decided that I had to have on the show. When you sit with Alan, you conversation goes in a thousand directions. So I really wasn't sure where this was going to go from, you know, a 12 point peace program for the world to um, the education system, to the role of RNA in our brains, to ultra marathons of which he's done 11, all of which lasting for 24 hours. So needless to say, I was just enthralled for this next hour and I, and I hope you will be. We talked about Um, introverts versus extroverts. We talked about conflict, getting people out of pre-programmed adversarial responses and the hows of that. We talked about having an intention rather than answers when you go into any kind of conflict. Uh, We talked about consensus and what it takes to produce more than everybody wants as opposed to what everybody wants and how that differs with a large number of stakeholders to a small number of stakeholders. He is just some kind of sensei in this world. And I hope you take something pivotal from this because I guarantee you there's more than one lesson in here to be learned about influence and dealing with group-like conversations. This interview nearly didn't happen today because we were having breakfast before the interview and I could have sat there and probably would have sat there for the rest rest of the day just talking to you, which is part of the reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast because you're one of the most insightful and interesting and probably more importantly interested people um, that I know. So thank you for making the time. Thank you, bless you. Just for the another side of that um, situation for the listeners – uh, is that uh, for me it was a joy to have somebody who listened attentively and asked such exploratory, inquiring, inquisitive questions that made breakfast irrelevant and the <laughs> conversation was delicious. Almost as delicious as the porridge. Um, I'm going I'm to kick off asking the same question that I ask at the beginning of every podcast. And for those of you who haven't listened before, the reason that I ask this question is because I find that no matter where I go and who I speak to from the highest levels of corporations um, to people at the back of taxis, especially. And that is the, the story that in order to be influential, you need to be an extrovert. Um, in order to be heard, you need to be loud. And, I'm always really fascinated to ask people such as yourself who have spent a lifetime studying influence, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or do you consider yourself to be an extrovert? Um, Neither. Um, And both. Um, They're just a description. They're not, you know, who I am is not introverted or extroverted. Um, Who you are and... They're convenient labels um, to simplify our complexity. And it's really important that we consider that, but that we don't think I am. I've got to be careful what I say, I am, Mm. too. Um, You know, at the core I'm a a crazy, loving, adaptable, curious human being. Um. And, you know, to introversion and extroversion are just to the tools that I have available to use, not who I am. Mm. Um, sometimes I need to be quiet. <laughs> Something that I wanted to flag, listening to my interview with Alan, you'll notice that there are times when he takes a really considered pause. 
He's a complete master of communication. And what he's doing when he's pausing is he's really thinking about the question I'm asking and taking his time to honor his intention. He uses his language and pauses so beautifully that we didn't want to edit them out. And it's something that I think there's a real value in learning from. <laughs> Sometimes some of us need to just shut up <laughs> in real simple terms. And Isn't it one of those, the, the skills of life, knowing when those moments are? <laughs> everything's, everything's about timing and timing's made powerful by observation and listening. I love and, Go on. And, you know, if, there's, if, if somebody is going to go, I, you know, Alan Parker, I am a, I would go, I'm an astute observer and I'm an obsessive listener um, because I, I want to know. Mm. You know, I just, I want to know. And I always find that, I always find that fascinating mm-hmm. coming from somebody that, you know, you facilitate large-scale discussions in mm-hmm. front of hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. I've seen you in rooms with 10 to 20 people. Mm-hmm. Um, I always find it fascinating that you don't consider yourself to be either an introvert or an extrovert, that you just consider yourself to be a very adaptive mm. human being. Yeah. Uh, 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 see, I, I, I can be... You know, and I, you know, to use that language, that conversation, it's not a conversation I have. Um, but I was the, the only introvert out of nine children. Uh, with nine kids, it depended on you know, whether you're introvert or extrovert, determined how many pieces of toast you got in the morning. <laughs> and that is the most important and, currency. And given that available. I'm the slowest eater in the world, people often say, How come you're still so lean? I go, Because it's so heat slowly and everybody else eats the rest. And um, I learned that I had to adapt, that who I am right at this minute <clears throat> can't determine who I am tomorrow because uh, tomorrow the external world's going to be different and requiring more of me. And if I'm still holding on to this is who I am, um, the truth of the matter, you know, I'm 65, which I can't believe, but I, I'm still discovering elements of me that I get excited by and I think, wow, um, I'd have been clumsy and had an opinion about that last week. And today I'm going, wow, there's six or seven aspects of that that I didn't even consider. How do I move between the two, if I move between the two? So let me deal with how do I move between the two first. If I go to a, into a room and something's really quiet and soft and slow, um, I'm going to turn the power down. Is that literally a switch that it's in your choice. brain? It's a choice. So you it's go, I need to flip the switch. Yeah. What? No, the question well, I want to no, ask is the, how do you find it? Well, this is the, the, um, not how do you find it because it's there. So it's not looking for it. It's how do you access it. And that is I come into the room, you're really soft, gentle and quiet and I'm in my excited, inspired, motivated mood. And then I notice because I'm looking at you going, she's not moving as much as me. So I might... Just turn the pressure down a little. And if you watch, I just let my body drop and relax a bit. Just simply let it become a bag of potatoes and drop. And soften. And as I let the muscles in my body loosen, the voice quality softens. And the eye contact reduces its intensity. And the definitive language that I would have used and the exaggeration I would have used Mm. um, for some... Some part of my brain just says, you don't need to do that right now. So it's an active choice. Totally. An right. active Life choice. Is. Yeah, well, we will we'll be getting <laughs> on to that. Um, so it's an it's an active choice for you to walk into <clears> a room, go, wh- where is this person at and how do I mirror that behaviour? How do I honour her? Honour, that's a beautiful honor. word. Mm. How do I just pause and get out of me in autopilot, do an Allen, and just stop for a minute and go, put my attention on this human being and simply honour that there's another human being there. That I want to let them know I appreciate that they, they exist, that they're in front of me, that they're available, that they're 
willing to connect that they're um, they're in relationship with me in the preliminary stages. Of course, once we come together, we are impacting and affecting each other and influencing each other, whether we know it or not. How does that message, I mean, that's a message that I can see going down really well from a relational point of view. But I know the levels that you work at and I know that you are dealing with, often on a daily basis, you know, some of the most powerful, influential people, um, sometimes in the world, but certainly in Australia. How does that message go down with them? I can just imagine this high-powered um, individual and you're talking about honouring. Mm. Mm. Is there a receptiveness <clears throat> to that message? Does it take a while or is there a different I, language that I you use? I never used? use it. I never message it. I do it. Mm-hmm. So I don't, talk, I don't talk about it. I never talk about let me honour you. Um, but I just, in t- inside of me, my simple language for describing it is stop paying attention to Alan for a minute and put every piece of my attention out on the person or the group that I'm working with. Now, if it is a group, and as you're aware, most of my work with groups and large numbers of groups, large numbers of people in groups, I am first and foremost attentive to the group, the community, the team, the collective, and then the individual. So if I walk into a room full of people and I've got a room full of people who are of a particular type, uh, I'm going to adjust everything from my dress to my language to my uh, movement to my pauses to how many questions are asked to how many statements I make. Um, I'm going to constantly be watching and observing, listening. And I'm always asking the question, what are they really after here? What do they really want? And what do they collectively want, not individuals? And how do you, I know we're still on the first question here, but how, how do you find that? Because you're, you're talking about the needs beneath the words. Yeah, yes, I am, I am. Um, how do I find it? Um, the really important bit is a deep belief that it's there, that, you know, a child yells and screams because it wants something or it's in pain. So if you get caught up in the yell and scream, that which is just the sign, the signal, the alarm, uh, that I've got a need. Um, and if you address the scream, you'll miss the need. And, you know, I think our society spends its life um, addressing the symptom or the yell or the scream or the feedback and forgets to look at why. Going back in my history when I was a therapist, um, one of the fascinating things I discovered and I learned a lot from it was that I would get a run of people who would mention that they had headaches. And when I explored it, there was a particular category of headache sufferers, and they were what I call weekend headache sufferers. And over time, you know, you'd find them and they'd take pills over the weekend. And after a while I thought, this is crazy, we've got to dig deeper. And I discovered that 90% of those people all ate chocolate during the week, binged, and didn't eat chocolate on the weekend. So they were having chocolate withdrawal. They weren't having a headache. You found an, an entire category of Category of people. Called and there were a lot of them. And there were a lot of them. Yeah. Now, when we started working, I started, I'm, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm an experiment, everything's an experiment. I went, let's try different ways of managing these people and see what happens. And I used to get people to peak at Wednesday. So you're going to have a small amount of chocolate Monday to Tuesday and you're going to peak at Wednesday. Thursday going to reduce, Friday going to reduce, Saturday, you're not going to have a headache. And it worked? Of course. course. Yep. Now, another group of people, we did the same thing, but we doubled their water intake. Now, if dehydration was sending signals of stress that they just wanted water, they may have misread the signals and gone, I'm stressed, I need some comfort food and have chocolate. So they extrapolated the wrong conclusion to the signal. And so 
bringing that back for a second, it's exploring, <clears throat> exploring the, the screen <clears throat> or it, the symptom. Yeah, and and not jumping to a quick conclusion mm. about what it's about. A challenging negotiation is not actually what the true need is. It's not actually what they want. What the, the language that they use and the volume that they use of that can sometimes bear little resemblance yeah. to what the true need is. Because yes. the true need might be, yep. I just want to be heard. Yes. Yep. Julie, I, in my work, practical, you know, real practical world stuff, I, I, virtually, I interview everybody before. And, you know, my belief is good assessment, good conversation, good disclosure of information will provide enough information for me to find out what the common needs are. Mm. And that's why I do assessment. It's assessing and diagnosing what does everybody need here mm. right now that all of us would be inclined to go, of course. Yeah, that's, yeah. you know. And we were talking before, <clears throat> you said, you know, you um, you went over to read for the first 30 years mm-hmm. of your life and we were mm-hmm. talking about being in the playground. Yes. And you were saying <laughs> that while most people playing ball in the playground, you spent the majority of the time in your play- in the playground going up to people and almost <clears throat> interviewing them as to what had just happened in the classroom so that you could put the pieces together to be able to go back in for the next yeah. lesson. So that would have been perfect. I mean, you would have perfected the art at extracting information yes. in order to, you know, yeah. to get to the truth of something yeah. at a very young age. Yeah. It was interesting. I used to, you know, when Bella go and everybody go on the playground, for me to decide where I was going to go and who I was interacting with, I'd just quickly walk around and see what, was being talked about, and the minute anybody was talking about something that had gone on in the class or was going to go on in the class, that was where I stopped. And I just became the one who sat and listened really carefully, you know, listened. You know, my attention was 100% demonically on what was being said because I had to get information because I knew I couldn't get it out of the book. And every now and again I'd go... They said more than that. I can remember they said more than that. What was it? No. So I'd ask. The group. Now, of course, the minute I'd ask a group of people, they'd each remember different stuff that none of us had. So I learned really quickly and I used that technique um, in a number of large global meetings that I've run um, where I, every, if I'm running a global meeting, every 10 minutes I stop the meeting and I go, turn to somebody you don't know and tell them what the two things that were most important that you just heard and notice that what you heard and thought was important isn't necessarily what the other person noticed. And also notice how frequently somebody accounts something that you didn't even hear. So it's the different filters. And Yeah. And all I'll do is I'll let them do that for 60 seconds, 30 seconds each, and then we start the meeting again. We get back to business. And I go, then one minute... Those two lots of 30 seconds is what the minute the real business is. That's what the real meeting was about. Yeah. Yep. Just acknowledging people, different people pick it up. It doesn't matter things. who it was on stage, who had the mic, who was talking. The important thing is who heard what mm. and what did that mean to them? Okay, so how do you prepare? <clears throat> Sorry. I mean, let's, go, let's, let's assume there that we <clears throat> the word difficult off the table and I'm going to prepare myself in the best possible <clears throat> way for this meeting. Yes. What, now do, you're what asking, do I do? Now you're asking me to be is, is that the good question? It's a good question. I love this. <clears throat> um, I go into every meeting believing that every person in the room is passionate about finding a common, agreeable, realistically workable way of us all doing better and all having more than we thought we could get. I have never had a negative assumption about any group of people that I've worked with in the last 25 years. I just go, they're all willing and ready for it to be better. One of my favourite things to do with a group of people right at the beginning is go, put your hand in the air really high for me if there is some part of you inside of your physical body that feels or believes or have a sense that you haven't got anywhere near your potential yet, that there's so much more of you to arrive, to be expressed. Would you put your hand up? 
And every time, 100% of people put up their hand. And that's the part of the group that I talk to. It's the part of them that are there because they believe it can be better. I can feel <clears throat> as you're speaking, I can, I can feel and hear the voice of the voice of someone saying, but but what about that person? You know that person that <clears throat> you walk into the room and they will argue at anything that comes <clears throat> out of your yes, mouth. Yes, and honour their argument and bless their argument for turning up because it gives me an opportunity to make their point of view, which they'll do it clumsily, angrily, aggressively, hostilely, um, bullishly, that most people will react to. And I'm going to love it and honour it and go, wow, fantastic, I love the vigour of your energy. Now, I'm not going to go the aggression of your energy. I'm going to see the value of the usable amount of energy. Let me just check for you. Have I got it correct? What you're saying is... Now, in my honouring of what they're saying and inquiring and making sure that I have understood them, they're actually now feeling heard, feeling valued, and they're over-efforting, they're over-concentration, they're over-compensation, they're pushing because they haven't felt heard, diminishes straight away. See, their aggression is only a statement. I haven't been heard, I haven't been understood, I haven't been given a fair chance. Um, and I'm annoyed that that's not happening. Now, all I've got to do is go, wow, sounds like you're pretty passionate about that. And I go, yep, I am. And now I've just got them to agree they're passionate, not angry. And does that tie back to, I know you and I have t- spoken before about the power of intention. Yeah. You were saying that, you know, you don't go into <clears> the room, especially large scale um, mm. consensus building mm. Con- mm. or seeking consensus. You don't go in with the answers, but you do go in with an intention. Uh, I go in with, um, no, I don't. I go in with a rich history and I'm blessed. You know, it's the advantage of my age. I go in with a rich history of people demonstrating to me in front of my eyes, in reality, in real time, over real business issues, over big complex issues, that they want to find a better way. And that if you ask them enough good questions and honour them enough and explore them enough, they'll come up with ways of doing that. So it's not about what I go in with. It's about the evidence. I'm a scientist. I have evidence that people want to do better. I've got evidence that people are willing to explore possibility if we'll explore possibility. But we spend so much bloody time exploring problems and static opinions that I have Based on nothing. What's a static opinion? Can static you, can opinion you walk is that it's a, a difficult group of people. It's a difficult. I've labelled them in time statically. They are. So they're now non. I, they can't possibly it, change in my view. I have <clears throat> modelled them out. And, that's it. And my static opinion will always disservice me because human beings are permanently dynamic. And I've got oh, wow, they were they were talked about as being difficult and I'm starting to see some movement. Yeah. We've got to start talking about movement, not fixation, not you are. Not labelling. Not I'm not. You know, if we could just do, I wonder. If we could just do, how, how could it be? You know what I love about that, that particular question, because I've got some more questions about Mm. questions. This is a never-ending rabbit hole. Mm. What I love about that particular question, I wonder, Mm. if you go into a meeting or a sales pitch or whatever it is you're going into, if you went in with that question, I wonder how I can connect with this person Mm. in a way that we can find each other. I remember I I had a person on my team that I worked with um, they will tell you themselves they were high on energy, mm-hmm. often low on attention span. And Which is never true, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm happy to come back. But okay, that one is we'll, never true. We'll, we'll circle back on that one. No. Um, and what I found was that if he and I, and, you know, I really, I, I always enjoyed his company. Yes. It's a brilliant brain. If he and I went to the basketball court, which was mm. just about a five-minute walk from the office, yes. and we just shot hoops together, yes. then we could have a constructive dialogue. It, of course. It, Absolutely. It went well. Where I Absolutely. sat him down at a table with me. Inappropriate. Static static to dynamic mm. phenomena. But just that so. question, I wonder how 
we could connect and find a consensus and here. And if you don't ask say, I wonder how, you'll sit him in the static position and then criticise his function and he's all over the placeness because you put him in the wrong location, mm. because you provided the wrong context. You know, take any two people. I mean, this is one of my primary techniques is somebody who manages a reasonable amount of people who think they're in conflict. Most of them aren't, but they think they are and they behave as if they are. The minute you think you're in conflict, you behave like you are. I will frequently go, let's take a break, we're going to walk around the block. And when we walk around the block side by side, a completely different part of their brain, a completely different person and a completely different set of thoughts and a completely different set of conversation expressions, language patterns turn up 100% of the time. Is that movement? Is that the power of movement? Well, it's (coughs) movement is part of it. But if you want to dig deep and go, what's the core? The core is when you and I sit and face each other, which can be, you know, a lot of people talk about how important it is. Um, I think it's an absolute error. The minute you and I turn and face each other when we go pupil to pupil, in our nervous system, the fight and flight response is just triggered. And we're either going to make passionate love or argue. <laughs> now, and, you know, that's often uh, a difficult decision. And, and, and sometimes we go, well, but eyeball, eyeball to eyeball, close, get too close mm. and we'll either be aggressive or passionate. And essentially even the languaging, and, I'm going to front up to you. Yeah, I'm isn't aggressive. up to you. Yeah. Isn't that lovely? Now, the minute I get inside your proximity boundary is what I call it, but it's the place and it's, there's a boundary where you feel absolutely in your space, in your skin, we use the term, the minute I get inside your invisible boundary, um, your pupil dilates, it sends a trigger into your brain, it shoots straight to a thing called the amygdala and the amygdala pumps cortisol and adrenaline and all of a sudden you've now got all this energy available, blood is pumping out of your brain and going to your hands and feet to fight, flight, or have fabulous sex. Yeah. And... We so frequently sit across the table from each other pumping adrenaline and cortisol. It's a biological phenomenon and if we could simply change the angle, the proximity and the height. Angle, the proximity and the height. Proximity and height. Now, it took me 30 years to take the 3,000 things that I've looked at and studied around human influence and break it down to go, if I'm front on to you, I am more likely to conflict with you. Right. If you and I walk side by side, we're less likely to. Now, that has nothing to do with anything except stimulating your adrenal function or sedating it. It's a biological base biological phenomena that exists in vertebrae Mm -hmm. with no exceptions. There's something you taught me that I have used again and again and and have mentioned to a lot of other people. I'm going to try and explain it now because it actually involves hand movements. Um, And for those of you that are listening, if I don't do a good job, I'll figure out a way of being able to demonstrate this. So you and I sat side by side at the moment due to a slight tech fail. Your mic wasn't working, so we're here sharing a mic. in terms of sitting side by side, if there's an issue that we're dealing with, one of the most beautiful and elegant things that you showed me was taking that issue in your hand. So I'm holding yes. my hand up now yes. as if I'm holding the issue. Yes. And then putting it, I'm doing it literally now, putting it on the table in front of us. Moving it laterally. Yep. Away from us, not between us. So it's not between us anymore. No. And then both of our eyeballs automatically go to the Look table. Look at the Blackboard. And we are now talking about something that is separate to us as opposed to something that is set between yes. us yes. as an object of yes. um, of conflict. Yep. That sounds so rudimentary and so simple. Oh, what literally so I'm going to pick it up and put it over there. Mm. But it works. It's, it's amazing. Yep. And every time I do that exercise, and I'm, I'm going to explain it for the listeners in a much simpler way in a sec. Thank you. But every time I do that exercise in a room with a group of people, people turn back and go, I cannot believe something so small could have such an immediate impact on my nervous system. It's incredible. How I feel, how I think. And the simple way of saying it, and this took me a long time to work out, is hand gestures need to move away from the midline. Hand, hang on, I'm just hand working gestures. that out in my brain. Hand so, gestures need to move away <coughs> from the midline. I'm, how I'm can we do this being, just through If audio. I put my hands together like yep. I'm praying yep. and I move them apart from each other, mm-hmm. that's your primary way of moving your hands 
to influence another human being. Another way of saying it is I take my hands outside the width of my shoulders. Mm -hmm. Now, the moment I take my hands outside the width of your shoulders while I'm talking and looking to you, all I've got to do is turn my head slightly toward the hand that's outside. Mm. And you look at that and now we've got what we're talking about, Mm. not between us. And we've gone from arguing about it to talking Mm. about it and looking at it together. Just going back a second to... um can I interrupt for one yeah, second? Yeah, absolutely. For the 90% of Australian gestures in males and about 75% in females in business settings are between the shoulder blades and toward the person you're talking at. And if we want to influence, we've got to stop doing that. So don't gesture at, gesture away from. So any hand gestures that any, are not within your shoulders? Any movement between two creatures with a vertebrae mm. toward, directly toward the eyes yep. will stimulate adrenaline function. Got it. If I want us to be calm, composed and considered and looking at what the alternatives there are, the part of my brain that pumps adrenaline cannot, will not, has not the capacity to do calm, composed consideration. What I might mm. what, what I might actually get you to do is we might do a, some kind of a video to to go yes. along with this yes. I think because there's yes. a lot of it is visual and I don't want yeah. anybody to yeah. I don't want anybody to mess, miss out. Yeah. Um, the, but it makes the me the key message is that if whatever I'm doing in relation to you just change the angle of my body. So it's not at me no, anymore. No, so it's not at you. Got it. And, and I'm still making eye contact, but the eye isn't in the centre of the socket. Mm. See, adrenaline doesn't pump unless the eye's in the centre of the socket. Tears do not occur if the eye is above the midline of the socket. You've only ever had your eyes down when you cried. You never had your eyes up and had tears flow. The, the movement, the relationship of me and you and our eyes it has, you know, the neuroscience is teaching us that there's a whole world of newness to be experienced by redirectionalizing the eye. That's fascinating. Yeah. So literally t- yep. whether you cry, yep. how influential you are, yep. whether you're about to yep. fight <clears throat> or make love yes. comes down to where your eye is in your socket. Yep. Now, if it's a whole I, dating website. If based I, on this. It, there's, there's <laughs> <laughs> the important thing is to recognise that the average person doing their average business day, and let's forget personal just for a second, but they're doing their average business day. They are in such a rush, so busy, so determined, so clear on what they're going to do. They've already decided what they want to do in the discussion you and I are already having. Mm. So I've put the decision before the discussion and then wondering why you're not on side, mm. why you're not on board, why you haven't got ownership, why you're not engaged and why you're not being accountable and not realising that in my rush I've already decided what we're negotiating and I'm masquerading this meeting in which I'm not listening to you at all. I've got my spiel ready and I'm rolling it out and I go, Julie, you can see how that'll work. And I'm nodding my head and, and the fact that you didn't nod or respond or answer it, I actually considered you just agreed because I did the agreement for you. Now, going back to your introverts, get six or eight people in a meeting. And that's how decisions get and made. And that's how decisions are made. And do you want to know the frightening thing? The people who don't speak may or may not be introverts. The extrovert with an extraordinarily innovative idea who's scared of rejection will sit with that innovation in their head every meeting for six months and won't have spoken at all during that meeting. And they left the meeting six meetings in a row and didn't speak and nobody registered that they didn't speak and, in fact, the the boss of the meeting was talking about a consensual agreement and they didn't get consensual. They didn't even get participation. 
So let's tie, let's tie this back to questions. Now, worse, worse still, I'm going to walk out of the meeting and I'm going to talk to my other senior executive buddy and go, I've got a problem with him. He just isn't involved. He's not participating. He's not engaged. I think we've got to do something about him. And no clue that me racing ahead and not asking questions, not including him, not bringing him in, not taking time to go, I wonder what else we could do rather than how do we get to the outcome? So what are those? Because I really want to get to the <clears throat> questions part of this. So yes. if there are, for anybody listening, if there are <clears throat> three or four core <clears throat> questions yes. that you I know over years as a scientist in this, yep. that you have found, if you can master these four questions. Yep. Perfect. What would those four questions uh, I've be? I've just recently um, uh, released the fourth edition of the Negotiators Toolkit. Um, now in print for over 20 years and I've completely rewritten the chapter on questions to answer that exact question. It's not four questions, it's four types of questions. So if I'm going to be having a meeting with you, I'm going to be in negotiation, I'm trying to influence your decision-making process or and whatever I'm doing, there are four stages of asking questions and the very simple thing is, is the first question is what and how, what and how, what and how, what and how. How, how does that look? How what, does that sound? Exactly. The question you just say, how does that look? How does that sound? <laughs> exactly. Now, the minute you go how, I will talk to you freely and disclose techniques, actions, concrete things. The minute you go, what might that do? And now you've gone what? You're going to force me to think. And then you go how? And that makes me decide action. Figure what, how, what, how. You get think, decide, action, think, decide, action, think. That's what's happening in the brain. And the average person has no clue that that's available. And if we want to be skilled at influencing, don't do anything else. So just literally if just you're go, a leader how, heading into how. a meeting, what, mm. how, what, how. Does that apply especially, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it to sales. We mm. can take it up yep. to multi-party negotiations. Yep. But if you... Regardless of the circumstance, yep. if you can move between what, how, yes. what, how, you're going to somehow find a consensus Let me and some action. quickly give you an example of a sales group. So, Julie, what is it you're after today? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, how would that benefit you and impact you? Blah, 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 blah. What would you do with that? Blah, 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 blah. How is that going to, you know, flow on? Create an impact. What would you like us to do with that? And now I've gone from you and me to us. And I've got you and me now exploring how we're going to bring it about. And no, no one will even notice that I've gone from individual what and how to collective what and how, and you and I are now involved in coming up with new ideas. I'm just imagining you at the moment in front of, um, I mean, we've talked, we talked before that you, you do negotiations up to, you know, how many countries was <clears> it that you negotiated? Um, I, I've had 193 representatives from 193 countries in the room, <coughs> pardon me, on um, two occasions. And I've had um, 1,200 people from 180 countries, I think, was the largest number. In one room at one time. So I'm imagining that. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining that and I'm imagining you <clears throat> and the what, how. Mm-hmm. And oh, <clears throat> this shows probably <clears throat> my thinking process. <clears throat> All I can imagine is that many people talking at once because you're going what, how, what, how. <clears throat> how do you, if you keep the conversation that open, how do you then on a large scale conversation <clears throat> keep it focused, Excellent. give Good. enough people a chance to talk Excellent. and yep. still find a consensus? Yep. Um, I'm going to do what, how, what, how. And then I'm going to do um, acknowledge, confirm. And that is, so Julie, what you're saying is A, B and C. Have I got that correct? And I'm going to repeat back to you your key message, not my interpretation of it. So I've got to listen carefully. And I've got to do it regularly so I'm not taxing my memory. And we need to confirm regularly because if, if I could say what you're saying is A, B and C, have I got that correct? And you say yes. You now feel heard and understood. And I now feel certain that I've got what you've got. And we 
seal those first two questions, what and how, what and how, confirm, acknowledge, confirm, with an agreement. Yes. I go, oh, thanks, that's great. Uh, If that is the case, if that is the case, what else might we do? Now, that's called a hypothetical question. That's the third one. So I acknowledge and honour what you say and add wonderment, speculation onto it. So what you're saying is A, B and C. Have I got that right? Yeah. I'm just wondering if there was an element that you and I haven't thought about. You know, we're in a meeting with 193 countries. I wonder what the African people are thinking right now. I wonder what the middle of the range people who are not sure whether they're developed or non-developing countries or underdeveloped countries. You know, what are they thinking? What are the tiny little countries that 90% of the world population don't even know exist? What are they thinking? Now, all I've got to do is ask good quality hypothetical questions and I've got everybody's brain in new territory thinking, speculating and giving up on their belief about how the world is. And now I've got the part of the brain that starts to go, I actually don't know. I better think about that. I better read about that. I need to talk to somebody about that. I need to ask questions about that. And then we enter the world of possibility. We enter the world of unmet needs. We enter the world of multitude of options, possibilities, alternatives. We enter the world of engagement of people who haven't felt heard, included or thought about. Start to go, wow, somebody's actually thought about me. Isn't that fascinating? I haven't got to fight for a place at the meeting. I'm actually being talked about at the meeting. But then how do you turn <clears throat> all those I wonder what's <clears throat> and what ifs and, <clears throat> and hypothetical questions, how do you then yes. take all of that and distill it down yep. into now, consensus? I, I want for the listeners to realise that we're partly talking about a global meeting, which is <laughs> big and as hard as and as complex as it gets. But this could be us talking about family wedding, which is probably more more complex because of the emotional attachments and and, um, uh, families are more willing to do their dysfunction with each other. Good thing at an international meeting, people are so about showing the good part. Um, Oh, that would be business in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, But once I've explored what we need, what could be, I then do summary, confirm again. But when I summarise, I summarise the collective, not the individual. And so, so what I'm hearing each of us say is that we want this to be a really fun occasion. So I pull the one bit that everybody's in agreement with and then I go, and we want... Everybody have an opportunity to give in to the process, contribute to it and make it an extraordinary fun event. And they go, yeah. And I go, and we want to be sensitive but not protective in our conversations. And we want to feel that people care when we're interacting. Now, when... Those things are always talked about, but not very clearly. So how do you move into... And the minute I summarise what people agreed to, not disagreed with, the major negotiation difference in what I do and teach and write about is that we've got to look for common agreement before we address individual needs. So if I'm interpreting that correctly, what you're saying is that you, as a way to start any kind of conversation, meeting, negotiation, Mm -hmm. you need to start it with these are the things we agree on before you go into 
and what are our individual needs that we need to make sure get met. What and how is exploration mm-hmm. and clarification. Yep. I then acknowledge and confirm what I heard. I then open it up to possibility and then I summarise collective agreement. You mentioned once that there were five or six. I'm conscious of mm. of time here and, and I've got so many more questions that I can feel. <laughs> I, just because simply you've been such a huge influence on me mm, and my my influencing skills over the mm. years that I, you know, I have a thousand questions and keeping it to a short period of time was always going to be difficult. But I'm, I want to finish with this. You had mentioned there were five or six keys mm. to running successful meetings. Now, yep. this isn't just about meetings. This, no, is a, well, this is about any kind of consensus building that you have to do at yep. any level. Yep. You may well have run through these already. Are there any that we haven't shone a light on that are important? Um, if I can give me real key words... Um, we before me, um, we've got to honour the collective before we can honour the individual. Um, so what is it we need to do here? Why are we here? What do we want to create together? Um, so that brings to the second is how can I diminish our need for leadership and create our capacity for partnership. Uh, How can we be co-creators? The fourth thing is, which you beautifully demonstrated, the power of your questions have influenced my thought, my thinking and where I've gone. Um, So the third is ask more than say. Get skillful at asking questions. Because as I ask questions, I'm actually stimulating my own brain as well as yours. The next is separate me and what I feel from what I see and hear of you. So I've got to be better at seeing you and hearing you, not judging you and having opinions about you and labelling you. So I've got to be more attentive. When somebody comes along to me and says, oh, he's he's what I think about so-and-so, my favourite question is, what did you see? And what did you hear from them that allowed you to draw that conclusion? That allowed you to draw that conclusion? Because it's about your opinion conclusion, which is valid, but you need to know that that's about you not about the person. And if we could separate our experience from their experience and not blur the two. And the last one is um, every moment is a critical choice point. And I can constantly choose the state, physical, mental and emotional, that I bring to the interaction. So I can be funny or serious. I can be introverted or extroverted. I can be a big picture thinker or a fine detail. I can be astutely left field and ask obtuse questions and I can confirm the obvious. And if I can move and set my emotional, physical and mental state and recognise that I do that, Um, and that I'm not a victim of the external world, that I'm an influencer of the external world, a co-creator in the external world. And an influencer of my own internal world. And my own experience. The stories I tell myself. Yeah. Yeah. About what's happening and who's involved. Yeah, precisely. Brene Brown calls it conspiracy theories, which I love. Yeah, yeah. Me being a, you know, scientist and uh, having done substantial work in personality disorder diagnosis in the past. Um, I call it uh, social neuroses and paranoia. They're much harder That is much harder to spell. (laughs) (laughs) And a simple way of saying it is we get caught up in our own hallucinations and our hallucinations prevent us being present to what's real. And I... 
I see that and I'm also guilty of it. You know, when you mm. walk into a room and mm. you say hi to somebody and they <clears> kind of go, hi, and then they get back on with it and you walk away and it, and I'm better at catching myself yes. now. But bef- yeah. the easiest thing to do is go, have I, did I upset them? Have yeah. I, is there something that I did? Maybe yeah, it was there's, that thing. there's our neurotic hallucination. Mm. A total hallucination. And it could have absolutely nothing. They had a sleepless night with a sick child. And they do not have the external attention available mm. uh, to give to you because they've been given all night and you think it's something to do with you and it's absolutely nothing. Well, I'm, <clears throat> I promise to get you, to let you go mm. at a certain time. Mm. So I'm going to finish with just one yeah. last question, yes. which again is the question that I try to always finish with. And it's hard asking you this question because you've actually been in these circumstances, mm. whereas usually it's very hypothetical. Mm. If I could give you the stage... Yes. And I could give you a microphone. Yep. And in front of you is everybody you could ever want to influence. What's the one thing that you would either say or do or want to have heard? Uh, just in every cell in your body, be available to the reality that the human being deeply is ready, willing and desirable desirous of doing better, of improving, of realising what they could capably do. But the desire and the willingness to go beyond, to explore, to enrich myself um, is a collective energy force that's percolating, waiting. It's a bit like, you know, my gardener and... Right now we've just pruned roses and they're this gnarly stick. And a a month ago that gnarly stick had a two-metre stem with a beautiful big Kentucky Derby red rose on it. Now, that Kentucky Derby two-metre red rose was in that gnarly stick. So my comment would be, how do we get the rose out of the stick? Because it's there. By first acknowledging that it's there. Yep, it is. Well, thank you so much. It's a point. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. Um, I said I feel a part two coming on. (laughs) Since we got to, I would say, approximately a quarter of my questions. Um, But thank you. It's been an honour and a pleasure. Me too. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes. And also don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an interview.